Welcome, everyone, for today's podcast. We're really excited to have our close friend, our colleague, and a mentor of ours to share some of her story and some insights on classical Chinese medicine. You want to give her the backstory? Yeah, Anne is a dear friend of ours. She is also a pioneer in the field of classical Chinese medicine. She is the author of the widely acclaimed books, The Art of Pulse Diagnosis, Advanced Acupuncture, a Clinic Manual, which is a required text in many acupuncture schools in the United States, and the first and only text with complete and unique protocols for the complement channels. Soon to be released is her next book, Tongue Diagnosis. Anne Cecil Sturman has taught the application and methodology of the complement channels, the art of pulse diagnosis, and the use of food as medicine throughout Europe, Mexico, and the United States. For many years, she taught advanced clinical observation and was senior clinic advisor at her alma mater, the School of Acupuncture that was found by Dr. Jeffrey Yuen in 1997 in New York City. She is a longtime student of Dr. Yuen and was also the director of the Classical Wellness Center in Manhattan, where for many years she practiced and taught classes on advanced diagnosis and the theory and application of classical Chinese medicine. We are so honored to welcome Anne Cecil Sturman to the show. Hi, Anne. Hi, Anne. Thank you for joining us. No, I'm honored to be here. Hi, it's my honor. It's truly such a pleasure, and it's great to see you. I wish we were in the same room so we could have hugs. I agree. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Natural Healing Podcast, the show designed to guide, inspire, and empower you to elevate your health so you can achieve your goals and dreams. We are your hosts, Dr. Satara Moafi and Salvador Cephalou, a husband and wife team of acupuncturists and owners of a Center for Natural Healing, an integrative wellness clinic based in the heart of Silicon Valley. We're here to make the ancient wisdom of healing practical and accessible for your modern lifestyle. Well, I think the audience would really like to hear a little bit about your stories, starting off as a professional musician. I know you're a flautist and you've performed for many years, recorded music. And why don't you give us a little background on how you got started, turned into a career in Chinese medicine. You know, it's interesting when you look back on your life, when you get into advanced middle age, I guess, and you look back at the the trajectory of your life and you see, you really start to feel that every single step along the way was a critically important part of arriving where you are at the moment. And so when I look back on my music career, what I think, the role I think it played in allowing me to be here in this moment is that it's probably one of the most stressful careers you can have, (laughs) right? So the pressures, especially being a principal flute player, so you're sitting right on top of the sound, you know, you're, you're making 
the most, at times, you're the most prominent voice in an ensemble which shouldn't have, you know, in which no one really sticks out for very long. But having experienced that kind of performance pressure for a long time means that to go out and teach is extremely easy. <laughs> I don't have any trouble with it because it's um, there's so much less at stake when you're a musician, especially a flute player, every single little extraneous noise or interference in the sound is easily perceived. But you can stand up and teach and, um, you know, you might say a sentence that you don't quite, you know, I wish I had said that sentence a slightly different way. So you just say it again. <laughs> so, so I think it had that, it gave me a foundation of being able to be relaxed in a teaching situation, which is what I see my mission as being. I think my mission really is to help play an important part in enabling the profession of acupuncture to be ready to incorporate the entire practice of acupuncture, which involves so many more channels than are taught in schools at the moment in general. Oh, but you want to know a bit about the career? Oh, well, I um, so I went to the University of Melbourne. I got two degrees in music there, bachelor's and master's, and then I went straight into Broadway. I played many, many Broadway shows as a full-time uh, player, you know, holding the contract. Because a lot of people will play Broadway, but they'll, be, you know, they'll come in and do a show or two a week. And I did the eight shows a week grind for know 10 years or so but it was fantastic I wouldn't change it for anything I had I met fantastic people it was a terrific lifestyle I toured all over the world really then after that when I met Andrew I started touring with the Philip Glass Ensemble and uh, so I toured in Europe and Australia and the United States with them and that really I think I'm very comfortable in, I would say, retirement actually from from the music profession now. I, I'm comfortable in my retirement because I don't feel like, oh, I wish I had done that. I wish I had, you know, achieved that. I played principal flute in a regional orchestra for 10 years also, which overlapped with the, the Broadway. So, you know, I've played an enormous amount of classical material and, and a lot of commercial material and played on film soundtracks and but being out as an itinerant player with the glass ensemble which put me under the absolute maximum pressure because that band that ensemble it plays some of the most difficult music ever written it's on the edge of what is possible you're playing almost as it's so exciting because you're just on the limit, or at least I was, just on the limit of my physical capability. And the band holds together in this magical way that an, enables you, your capability to accelerate and rise to this extreme demand. It's, it's like, um, it's almost like, like doing a triathlon in music. So, and the, you know, the real challenge with the glass ensemble for me was that every time I did it, there was no rehearsal. <laughs> it's not, you know, because if you come in as a casual player, you just go right in, you get dropped in. I can't even imagine that. Unbelievable. 
It's fascinating. <laughs> but anyway, preparation and practice and those kinds of ethics are extremely important in the medicine too. You know, real application, real practice and the idea of cultivation. But I think the most wonderful parallel between my music career and my acupuncture career is that I had the great, great fortune of having extremely good master teachers. So by the time I'd been learning for 18 months, so I I started learning flute from my seventh grade music classroom teacher, Peter Rector in Melbourne, Australia. And he was just, just wonderful. And the first time, so my friend Ivana and I, he said, well, you've got to learn, everyone had to learn an instrument. He said, "You okay, it's time to bring you two up to the storeroom cabinet. What are you going to play? And I said, I really want to learn the saxophone. And my friend Ivana said, yeah, 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 saxophone, <laughs> saxophone. So, and, you know, I've always loved the saxophone. So we went upstairs and there were no saxophones and we're all, you know, the two of us standing there with our bottom lips out, you know, pouting. And he said, well, a couple of flutes. And so I said, okay, okay, we'll try that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we went down with the, the two flutes and she actually hated it. She gave up after two weeks and I, I didn't get a sound for two weeks, but she got a sound straight away. And then, then she said, no, nah, I'm not going to do this. So, <laughs> and then Mr. Rector really he really persevered and um, by the end of 18 months I had done my sixth grade flute exam and he said, I just, I think it would be irresponsible of me to take you further. I think you need to go to this person and and the person he sent me to was the principal flute player of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and so I studied there, studied with him for until I went to music school for college and Melbourne University and and then when I went back to do my master's I had a a master teacher Marty McSully who had studied with Andrew's flute teacher in New York she'd been here for 10 years and then studied a bit with Jean-Pierre Rampel who's probably the most wonderful flute player ever to live just a beautiful beautiful French player and incidentally his theory was that if you wanted to sound good on the flute, you had to put it away for the entire month of August. He said, just don't play. I said, what, not even long notes? Because, you know, long notes are the staple of wind players. I guess actually string players too. Long, You've got to get your long notes really rich and stable. And he said, no, no, put it in the case and, and just rest. And then when I first came to the United States, I studied with Julius Baker, who was the principal flute player of the New York Philharmonic. I actually studied at his house in Brewster, which coincidentally is about a 15-minute drive from where I am right now. It was just amazing. And the way you learned from Baker, Baker didn't actually teach you anything. He played in front of you and he would say, like this, and he would make sure you stood, you know, within two feet of him. And you would, it was the most extraordinary experience. You'd feel this donut of dense sound all the way around him. 
and you would osmose it. And he was just a master teacher without actually teaching. And so when I <laughs> so when I encountered Dr. Yuen, I was in a position where I could I felt, oh my goodness, this is another like how can this be that I could be so fortunate this person is a world-class master and I had just come from a string of ma- of true masters in music and then my first encounter in this new profession was another one and in Chinese medicine they're rare because you were destined to be a master teacher yourself well, I'm not, you know, I, I am, uh, uh, <laughs> I am simply doing my best. I definitely don't consider myself a master teacher, but um, I do. Yeah, because you're very humble. I would like to hear, how did you go from, uh, from being so immersed in music to uh, going into the field of Chinese medicine? Yeah. What broke that door open for you? Well, I remember listening to your podcast. Was it both of you or one of you said that you didn't enter Chinese medicine through um, some kind of negative experience? You went through it like it was a conscious choice. Well, I'm one of those people that had a terrible experience. <laughs> and oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I can't join your club. So <laughs> <laughs> I had had acupuncture. I had been to acupuncture in Melbourne. I had um, Tracy Hickling was my acupuncturist in in Melbourne when I lived there. And, you know, musicians are constantly having physical problems. So acupuncture was not foreign to me. In fact, my mother, Marjorie, in, I remember as a child, as a young child in starting, my earliest memory would be 1967, being in the back seat of the Volkswagen with my baby brother and my dad at the wheel, and we would be sitting outside Dr. Chang's office um, on Williamstown Road in Footscray, waiting for my mother to come out of acupuncture for her migraines. So, and at that time, that was a very weird thing to do. So, my parents. They were very creative thinkers. I mean, if you suggested that to them, my father's passed now, but if you suggested that to them, they'd say, what? You know, (laughs) we're just doing what you do. But acupuncture was extremely rare and they were engaged in it. And my brother in um, between birth and the age of one year, 12 months, he had been in hospital 13 times for pneumonia. He was born premature. And the last time he was in hospital, my parents looked at each other and they said, you know, he's not going to make it. And they picked him up out of the hospital bed and they put him in the Volkswagen and they drove him up to the Van Wannicks. Well, the Van Wannicks were two brothers who practiced chiropractic in a windmill about an hour and a half's drive out of the centre of Melbourne. And they said all right, you've got, there can be no sugar, there can be no flour, there can be no wheat, there can be no dairy. This is 1967. So I was brought up in that kind of of atmosphere. 
in an alternative medicine atmosphere. And it was extremely nourishing. So I, you know, I grew up on brown rice, rice, not white rice and, you know, no processed food, which was kind of, and, you know, of course my friends thought that was weird, but even my children's friends think it's weird now. So, <laughs> so I guess not that much has changed in, in a way. But anyway, very fast forward, when I got to the, the United States and um, when I emigrated, I couldn't work. Back in those days, and this is pre-9-11 even, it took a long time to get a green card. So I was here unable to really do anything for a year and a half. And we decided we'd start a family, that it seemed to be, to be a really good opportunity to do that. So this is, I don't, I'm not sure if I've told this in public. It's, a, it's very personal, but I think, you know, one thing that's happening in our culture is that people are getting much more intimate in public, right? They're telling more about themselves. So I'm, I'm trying to be brave enough to join that and not become an old fuddy-duddy. <laughs> but so when I was, I think, four months pregnant, I started to miscarry. And I didn't really quite know what to do, but then I started to ex- experience this extreme pain. So a friend of mine took me to the hospital. Now, one interesting thing is that Andrew is absent for all emergencies. So Andrew was performing with Philip in Istanbul at the time, or Argentina, I think he was in, no, he was in, yeah, he was in Istanbul. He was in Argentina for Hurricane Sandy. And but <laughs> he's always, it's, it's just amazing. It's funny, actually. So a friend of mine took me to the hospital and they told me that there was no heartbeat. Okay, so there's no heartbeat. And then uh, because my insurance was insufficient, this turns out to be a good thing, actually. They refused to do a DNC. And so I went home and the pain kept increasing. And I thought, I'm not going to be, I'm not actually going to make it, I think. All I could do was walk. I couldn't lie down. I couldn't sit. I couldn't, couldn't do anything. It was just walking, steady walking for hours and hours and hours is what the only thing that kept the pain at bay. And so I called Andrew to say a final farewell and he said, no, 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 no. And he called my friend Margaret. And Margaret came over and um, she said, you have to take, let me take you to the hospital. And I said, I'm never going to a hospital again. Well, what happened in the hospital was the doctor called in four students and they each of them did an internal exam and practiced using the ultrasound. And this was before they told me that there was no heartbeat. So I felt very profoundly disrespected. So I said, I'm actually never going into a hospital again. And she said, well, what shall we do? I said, I don't know. I'll just keep walking. Something has to give. And she said, I'm going to call my friend, the acupuncturist. So he came at 3am on his kid's scooter from, you know, a neighboring, a nearby neighborhood. And, and he came over and, um, he said, why don't you try to lie down so I can put some needles in? So I, I did, which was extremely difficult. And then he stroked my forehead and I thought, oh, well, that's unusual. A medical professional, 
like stroking a forehead. And then he held my hand. And like I'm almost getting tearful thinking about it. And I thought, oh my goodness, because the contrast between the coldness in the hospital and the warmth in that situation was, it was, even now it's a little bit overwhelming. So he put a few needles in and I now know that that was a very, very simple treatment, was not a rocket science treatment. And then he just sat with me. He just stayed there. And then I felt a shift and I felt the miscarriage actually come to a conclusion within half an hour and the pain just disappeared. And in that moment, I said to myself, ah, thank you for the pointer. This whole experience has been about pointing me to acupuncture. I have to study this. I have to find out what this is about. This is, even though it wasn't foreign to me, I hadn't really experienced the profundity of it. And even though the treatments that I had had myself in, you know, in Australia had been very good treatments, I hadn't needed anything like a lightning bolt. But that day I really needed something extremely powerful and it came. And so I um, dragged myself out of bed at 7.30 and walked to the living room and there's Margaret and her friend, the acupuncturist, happened to be a man, they're both like asleep on the pull-out sofa and I had a little chuckle to myself and because it was, I wish I had had a camera because it, it was a very, very funny sight, most unlikely sight. And then he went home and I said to Margaret, said, oh, I'm going to acupuncture school. So then I stayed a week in bed just gathering, recovering and gathering my strength and then I ordered the, the catalogues for the three schools in New York at that time. In Manhattan, there were only three schools. And then I visited them and it was very, very clear that I had to go to this school because I had to go to the Swedish Institute Acupuncture School because the dean was Dr. Jeffrey Ewan and he was clearly from the letter that that he had written in the catalogue, it was clear that he was an extraordinary master. Just what was encapsulated in that letter was profoundly moving just in one paragraph. So then I turned the catalogue over and I saw the address 226 West 26th Street. Hang on a second. I'm at 245 West 25th Street. I should be able to see this building. And if I walk to the back of my apartment, you know, if I had been able to jump out my window and just like walk a couple of buildings up, I would have been able to climb up the building into Jeffrey's office without crossing a single road. And it was pretty extraordinary. So in... Um, it was in your backyard. Yeah, it was in my backyard, yeah. So within two weeks I was enrolled and, and I went there. And before people start looking up that school on the internet, in 2011, a venture capitalist firm bought that school and closed it because it was in competition with the other schools that they owned. So one of the great tragedies of um, education in the entire history of, of education, not just the world, is the disappearance of that school. Indeed. Fortunately, uh, Jeffrey and, and, and now you are spreading 
the news mm-hmm. globally. Thank you very much. And that's why we're doing this podcast, because we want to get this information out also to the lay audience, because we all need to be empowered with this information. And there's a lot that everyone could glean from some of the basic knowledge. Yeah, it's immensely powerful. So I think what the public needs to understand is that there's only so much you can do with very basic acupuncture. And the reason that you encounter people all the time that say, I tried acupuncture, but it didn't work for me, is that the practitioner is not trained in all the channels of acupuncture. They're trained in the primary channel. And you can do a tremendous amount with the primary channels. And those practitioners do wonderful work. There's no denigration of that. It's simply that the possibilities for the treatment of chronic degenerative diseases, and I mean all of them, and I mean the most serious ones, can all be accessed through acupuncture, but not through the primary channels. For those you need what we call, as you well know, because you're both very fine practitioners, you need the eight eight extraordinary channels, the divergent channels, and to a lesser extent, the low channels. You need those channels and many, many acupuncturists haven't even heard of those channels. But we are mending this problem by publishing and publishing and teaching and teaching and and traveling and now at the toward the end of this COVID period, we've all been pushed online and it's been a tragic period in many senses, but it has also been a wonderfully opening period. That's the yin and the yang, you know, the dark and the light. The light side of the COVID period is that we have all worked out how to reach or we've been forced actually onto a platform or onto a kind of communication medium where we can reach many, many more people. And so that means that the profession is changing much more quickly than we we could have hoped, I think. Qi is energy and a lack of qi can lead you to have chronic fatigue as well as a weakened immune system. Visit a centerfornaturalhealing.com forward slash guide to get a free five-step guide with the tools you need to feel revitalized and follow your dreams. That's a centerfornaturalhealing.com forward slash G-U-I-D-E. So you alluded to this profound experience that you had with acupuncture, and we've all seen the almost mystical qualities of working with this modality. And one of the the main aspects of acupuncture is uh, working with this concept called chi, which uh, for the most part is defined as the life force. But as you know, there are much greater or broader ways to look at this concept of chi. And I was wondering if you would explore that some with us. Right. It's difficult to talk about chi without mouthing platitudes or, you know, making very general statements or without making statements that sound kooky, woo-woo, you know. But the reality of it is that all there is is chi. 
there is nothing but chi. And so you could think of chi as being a word that you use to describe an aspect of the God force that can be directed or that can be experienced or that can be felt. So no matter what you're looking at and no matter what you cannot see, there is chi. And chi really, in Chinese, it translates into air or atmosphere. And I think the reason it translates that way is that we're supposed to be reminded that chi is not something that you can measure. You cannot measure chi. And so the first thing we need to get away from is the idea that all that matters or all that is a bona fide belief or all the knowledge that we can rightfully accumulate results from what can be measured. This is a grave error. You can't measure chi. And because acupuncture works only with chi, that's all we work with is chi. And chi cannot be measured. You can put acupuncture through as many clinical trials as you like. You can work out the most elaborate studies you like and you will never be able to measure what acupuncture can do. So then if we jump to the channels, make a a jump to the acupuncture channels, I feel that the acupuncture channels that are applicable to humanity, and I'll get to the connection between, you know, the universal chi and the channels in a second, but that those channels, and I'm, I'm talking about, there's 60, 66 odd channels that we use in acupuncture. The bulk of them predate humanity. They appear in humanity, but they were there as potential all the time. So if you think of the entire universe, which of course has no limit, which already confounds the thinking mind, one of the most powerful questions I was ever asked was by my four-year-old son, Ravi, when he was just a little kid. And he said to me, Mom, if I were to go out there, and he's pointing up into the night sky, if I were to go out there and I were to go to the very edge of the sky, as far as you could possibly go, and I sat with my legs dangling off the edge of the universe, what would I be looking at? What would I see? And the, just the act of him asking that question, it created so many short circuits, and I really literally mean short circuits in my brain. I could feel my brain going zzz, error, 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 you know, <laughs> and these new synapses forming. I felt that for the first time ever, I was entertaining the idea of true limitlessness and that the the mind that needs to create limits, it needs to be able to measure things, it needs to know where the boundaries are, it needs to know how much something weighs or exactly what color something is or exactly what flavor it is, or how many miles did you really travel. It wants to know the measurements. It made me feel that the mind 
is so paltry. <laughs> it's so infinitesimally small and it's so incapable of understanding what really matters, which is that which cannot be measured. Love cannot be measured. Compassion cannot be measured. Empathy can't be measured. Right? All these things defy that. Well, so does chi. Chi defies measurement. It really defies understanding too. But what it can do or what we can do to encounter that limitless chi or the limitless nature of chi is to simply meditate. And when you meditate and you get to the point where you've lost your body, you know that feeling where you're in a meditation and suddenly you're not aware of your body. You don't know where your leg is. You don't know where your arms are. When you get there, then you've become aware of chi, the um, non-containment of chi. And so when we give chi all these different names, like animal chi or human chi or spleen chi or pancreatic chi or the chi of the dog or whatever you do, these are ways that the mind finds a limited subset of chi and gives it a name so that it can make more sense of things. But what I'm suggesting is that the acupuncture channels and all channels predate the life form that is created because they exist. So my favorite set of channels is the eight extra channels, as you probably know, the channels that govern the development and the blossoming of the human and that control DNA. And those channels, when they permeate the universe and they, when they encountered earth or when they, as they flow through earth, they set up the earth to receive human form. And so when we perform acupuncture, we're really reaching into the depths of the cosmos and every single needle that we put in a body, every time we needle a channel, we're actually needling all humanity. We're needling the entire cosmos. We're creating a ripple that permeates all beings, all things, all vacuum, all space. It's an extremely powerful thing that we're doing when we encounter chi as acupuncturists. Yeah, and I think, like you said about, you know, limitlessness or endless possibilities, it's so difficult for most people and even ourselves really to grasp that as a concept. And you see in terms of practicing this medicine in the culture that we're in that has such limitations on thinking and, you know, science and not to say anything negative about science, but science and Western medicine try to organize and categorize and understand and define define everything. And when you can't define it, it's kind of written off as ineffective or not proven, or, you know, we have different, more effective ways that have been studied through clinical trials. And that's a really hard thing to kind of explain to people and help them understand and wrap their minds around. Yeah. Well, you can direct people to an interview any of Robert Sheldrake's interviews, for example. So 
do you know Sheldrake, the British biologist? Rupert, Rupert Sheldrake. Have you heard of him? Yeah. yeah. The uh, 100th monkey theory. Yes, yes, exactly. So now he is castigated in the scientific community, but he speaks tremendous, a tremendous amount of sense, really, and a beautiful mind and a, a really warm-hearted person. But one of the most interesting concepts he talks about and investigates is a concept that came up in the 1920s called the morphogenetic field. And the morphogenetic field is a, a concept that um, where they talk about how on earth something knows how to be what it is. Like how does a tree know how to arrange its cells? And how is a human being assembled in utero? How do the cells know where to go? It can't be from DNA because DNA is simply a set of instructions about what proteins to make. So make this protein. Thank you. Now make that protein. Thank you. There's no message in DNA that says, now put that protein as a building block, put that here and start making that toe. Okay, now put that thing. Are you with me? It's it's like the arrangement of the proteins that are created courtesy of the instructions of DNA is purely courtesy of chi. And the morphogenetic field, which operates everywhere and in all living things, is like a blueprint of the human form. So it's a, it's a transmission to the uterus of what the human form is and then those proteins are assembled by virtue of that chi imprint, the imprint of that chi within the uterus. It's a really marvellous in scientific wording of what we know as chi. The morphogenic field idea relates to this idea of a... Um network of consciousness and he came up with this well they did a study where they taught some monkeys on an island how to clean their bananas before they ate them and then over time they saw that same bee oh they're sweet potatoes i think were they sweet potatoes and not bananas (laughs) it was an island off off the coast of japan and they were yeah the sweet potatoes yeah okay (laughs) well and then they saw this behavior being replicated on nearby islands with, you know, from monkeys that were never taught anything about cleaning their sweet potatoes. So they figured, well, this information was passed through some, some network of consciousness. And this makes me think of the idea that Jeffrey has presented at times where he talks about chi in terms of uh, love, an aspect of love, or he describes it as relationship. And so you can see there's this connection. And then it also ties into what you're talking about, how you can't measure something like this. Right. That's beautiful. You know, the love is the other main aspect of it. Or really, maybe you could say love is the entirety of it. We've talked about in past episodes the idea of creating miracles. And we talked about it in terms of opening the heart to vaporize the phlegm. And this is a a concept that it seems easy to verbalize, but then it's like to really grasp the reality of it, it seems almost too simple. And yet if you really just take it seriously, you might experience that 
miracle that you're hoping for. Yeah, I agree. Well, the phlegm, of course, is a a byproduct of the mind's distraction away from love, away from what is, and, and away from being connected. And so if you can't face that everything is exactly as it should be at all times, then you'll create phlegm to dampen the perceptive capacity of the sensory orifices. Yeah, it's almost like if we can't grasp something, we need to just like dull our senses to make it acceptable or something that we could embrace because otherwise it's it's too far out. Well, and that, that ties back to this idea that we've talked about in terms of the spleen and its transformation and transportation function, right? And when there's too much dampness, then your thoughts are not clear, you're overthinking, you're overworrying, and then that interferes and distracts all of the other systems, including the heart, right? It, it interferes with the heart, which really is all about endless possibilities. If your heart is open, miracles happen. There is no limit to love and empathy. And so it's just about calming the mind and getting rid of all that phlegm so that that doesn't interfere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the mind, it's a force to be reckoned with. Yesterday in the office, someone came in and they said, you know, I just can't make decisions. I can't. And it, I, I try to work my way through it. I work out the pros and cons. I make lists. I talk to my friends. I speak to my mother. And uh, I just can't work out. I said, what, what are you trying to decide about right now? She said, oh, whether to go on a second date with this guy. And I said, oh, okay. So what are your pros and cons? And so she listed all these pros and the cons and all the cons. And, and I said, well, that's a lot of mind activity. Shall we try a chi test? Let's try a chi test. And she said, oh, what's that? And I said, well, your breath, the ease of your Inhalation and exhalation is your built-in pendulum for working out what is real for you and what is not, what is true for you and what is not. So if you sit still, and why don't you do this right now? So I had to just sit and just take a few deep breaths. And we waited for her breath to become really steady. And then, and then I said, um, now say these words. I am going on a second date with this guy and then keep breathing. And she said, oh, my goodness, my chest just tightened up. Okay, okay, all right. Now say I'm not going on a date, another date with this guy and keep breathing. And she said, oh, my goodness, I feel so much more relaxed. And, you know, it's really interesting how people get so tied up in the pros and cons, in the measurements trying to make decisions through measurements when the answer is so clearly already available just in the sheer registering of the flow of chi. And that is such a good technique that I often share with patients and clients. It's so effective. And for people who don't have the capacity or aren't in a position, you know, if you're really nervous or whatever, trying to make the decision, it's even helpful to just try to take the breaths instead of just watch your breath. Like what decision allows you to breathe and what decision collapses your breathing? And it, you're right. It, the information is already there. 
All we have to do is access it. And the mind just wants to figure it out and process it and evaluate it and ask people (laughs) and do all these things that take us out of ourselves, right? It's the same as the idea of just trusting your gut feelings. People don't trust their gut feeling. They not only don't trust them, many of us are raised not to trust it. And the entire society, our entire culture doesn't trust it. You know, it hasn't been proven. It hasn't been measured. It hasn't been proven. So how can I trust it? But also the average individual really, I think, doesn't know how to open themselves to that awareness because we don't have a meditation culture. And I I would love to see every school day, you know, across the world start with 15 minutes of meditation, which, and actually there's a school in Manhattan that does that every day. It's called the, I think it's called the Friends School. It's a private school. I'm not sure. It's, it's, a, it's a religious school, but I can't remember the, the religion. And they, they spend the first 15 minutes in mass assembly in a silent 15-minute meditation. It's beautiful. That concludes part one of this two-part series with Anne Cecil Sturman. Now we want to hear from you. Visit a centerfornaturalhealing.com forward slash chi that's spelled Q-I and let us know in the comments what chi means to you. Stay tuned for part two where you'll learn how chi applies to the cultivation of wellness within the context of digestion, immunity, and nutrition. Please share this episode with your family and friends and be sure to take a moment to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts so we can share these empowering insights with more people just like you. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Natural Healing Podcast. We look forward to connecting with you again soon. Bye.